0: Welcome to episode 109 of Real Life Ghost Stories How
1: you do To
0: kick things off this week we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers We would like to thank Jennifer
1: Mullen Sydney Barmer
0: Kelly Mclelland, Jasmine Livingston Crystal Brittle Christine Marie Brittany Hedgepeth
1: David Price
0: Tiny Bim,
1: <laughs> Jaden Foster
0: Melissa Sperry
1: Kirsten Norris
0: And Jennifer Youngberg, thank you so much for being our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate you every damn day. We sure do. We would also like to wish a massive, enormous happy birthday to Stephanie Lorenko from her big sister Cheryl. But actually, more importantly, from me. Full stop. Just you. On (laughs) your own. Just (laughs) me.
1: Happy birthday.
0: We hope you have an amazing birthday. And our film review this week. Our film review is... The Exorcist. The Exorcist was released in 1973. It has 8 out of 10 on IMDb and 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. Would you like a synopsis?
1: Yes, please.
0: An actress notices dangerous changes in the behaviour and physical makeup of her 12 year old daughter. Meanwhile, a young priest begins to doubt his faith while dealing with his mother's sickness. What were your thoughts on this film? That synopsis is terrible though, isn't it? It's is really bad. That is one of the worst <laughs> synopsis, synopses we've had in a very, very long time.
1: Maybe they just think with films of this level, they don't need a synopsis.
0: Maybe they do. Maybe they're like, oh, fucking can't be arsed. we writing a proper synopsis for this. Everyone knows it. yeah, It's fine. Yeah. I'm surprised the synopsis isn't just, you know, the drill, head spinning, etc. <laughs> so what were your thoughts on this film?
1: It's still, This film, for some reason, and I was trying to pin the reason why when we were watching it still freaks me out.
0: It's still very scary. Even though, and I have to say, like, special effects wise and everything, it's questionable in the modern era in terms of what we see in modern horror. And I don't think it's fair to compare it to modern horror because they use what they had at the time. And at the time, it was, I'd I'd imagine in 1973, it was fucking terrifying. But it's still really scary.
1: Well, yeah, it just creeps me out. I don't know if it was because there was such a like a cloud around it when I was growing up that it was like, oh, you can't watch this. It's an evil movie, blah blah blah, and it's just kind of stuck with me. But it just gives me the creeps. Like, and you know, I watched it for maybe the fifth or sixth time last night. You know, I was laughing at points because I think it's really funny when Reagan swears that Regan swears that the people like that does actually make me laugh these days. But it still gives me the creeps. Like, I'm still, I still didn't want to watch it at a certain time of night, did I? <laughs> no, Dan refused
0: to allow us to watch it at nighttime. We had to watch it during the day because he was like, "No, I'll be too scared going to bed." Which is fair enough because I, I. I feel like I had forgotten how terrifying this film actually is. What um, how old were you when you first watched it? Do you remember when
1: you first saw it? I was in my early twenties, late teens. <laughs> Definitely wasn't able to watch it when I was younger, so I didn't really. I avoided horror movies really until I was like fifteen, sixteen, and then university really properly, just because of the background that I grew up in. It was a bit of a no-no to watch them, so. I didn't really see anything super scary until I was old enough to handle it but and I'm still freaked out. <laughs> in
0: particular this film The Exorcist which is all about a girl being possessed by a demon and it's putting the whole good and evil thing to the forefront. There were so many people that commented when I posted this that they literally weren't the film was not allowed in their house when they were growing up because their their parents were like absolutely not that's not coming into this house that is an evil film so I get that it was probably a big no-no. I think I was around 12 when I first saw it and I was quite
1: old for you in scary films isn't it
0: well yeah i'm surprised my brothers didn't let me watch it when i was like four and i watched it i think i watched it with my aunt but i remember being kind of fine with it until reagan crab crawls down the stairs and i was traumatized and i couldn't watch that scene when we watched it last night i had to cover my eyes i knew it was coming and i just couldn't watch her crab crawl down the stairs it was horrific
1: It does work really well, and I think it holds up to a point as well. I think it
0: does too, and I think when I was watching it because I haven't watched it in a long time, and you know, definitely haven't watched it since we started doing the podcast and like thinking about films. And I mean, The Exorcist set the scene for possession films. Every possession film that we've seen since then has elements of The Exorcist in it, even in real exorcisms. I am doing "quote unquote" real exorcisms. A lot of the like ideas and language behind real exorcisms seems to be like rooted in this film, which is, I mean, that's incredible. What a legacy to leave behind!
1: I think it's also like the basis for modern horror as well, isn't it? If you think what came before it, you've got like Nosferatu, which is like early horror, and then you've got like Hammer and the Universal monsters stuff, which is can be quite scary. <laughs> but this is sort of groundbreaking in in terms of the topic it covers. Yeah, the way that it scares.
0: I'd, I'd love to know what the correlation is between ideas about the Ouija board and the Exorcist film. Because I wonder if people started to take the Ouija board more seriously after the Exorcist came out. Because there's that reference... I mean, we don't know whether the Ouija board, her playing the Ouija board is linked, you know, but there is that whole uh, reference to her playing the Ouija board and they just kind of... Her and her mum just accept it and, and brush it off. But this film, I think... It transcended what had gone before it because you suddenly have this innocent young girl is the evil being or she's the vessel for the evil being. They're not religious family. So there's not there's none of that, you know, prior priming for a possession. And they're an upper class family in society. Like mum is a well to do actress Uh, do you know what? one of the things that i didn't probably recognize about this film when i was younger is how realistic the portrayal of her party is yes (laughs) because you've got that guy who gets outrageously drunk and is really randomly um accusing the the butler of being a nazi and starting fights and stuff and loving his life we all know that person at a party they are drunk at the end there's those few hangers-on who insist on having a really bad sing-along and i was like oh yeah yeah, this is pretty accurate, for, except for the girl then coming downstairs and pissing all over the floor. Although I've seen some <laughs> parties one like of that the too, guests, though, isn't it? <laughs> rather than
1: the child, I think for me the other thing that I'd kind of not realised is how big Karis's redemption arc is in this story. And actually, it's a it's a journey about his faith. It's actually a story about his faith and his ability as a priest, and and his relationship with his mother and his feelings of letting his mum down and all that. There's all that storyline going on that you just don't get when you're younger and you're just watching it as a scary film. You kind of miss that as well.
0: It is brilliant. And it was brilliant at the time. It's so... I, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, I can't believe they put that in cinema at the time. I can understand why it was banned on TV in Ireland until 1998, I think. Like, that's in, that's insane. I mean, you have this teenage girl and she didn't... The Linda Blair didn't actually do the bits where she's like masturbating with a crucifix and stuff because they didn't think it was appropriate, which I'm glad, you know, because yeah, that's, that's, to- that's a lot for... Um, a girl of an actress of her age to try to try and do and to, how would you even explain that to her but I mean they put, that was that was in a movie in 1973 about exorcism that's just wild groundbreaking so what score are you going to give the exorcist
1: I have to give it a five because full movie podcast will assassinate me if I don't
0: <laughs> I also have to give it a five I think if you showed it to a teenager now who had never seen it they'd probably laugh the whole way through it. And I think a lot of the reason why we're still frightened of it to this day is because we were frightened of it as kids, you know? But it, it paved the way for so many horror films. It really did. And if you want like a full breakdown of this movie, I highly recommend you go listen to Full Movie Podcast because it's Matt's favourite film and he knows everything there is to know about this movie. Which brings us to our story this week. And I'm quite excited about this. Me Me too. You should be, because I think you'll enjoy (laughs) this one. I'm not going to give you a a run into it. I'm just going to go right ahead. Okay. We couldn't watch The Exorcist without talking about cursed movies. The first horror film ever made was a two and a half minute short film called The House of the Devil. Since then, horror movies have thrived for decades, birthing many subgenres. Within horror films, we can explore dark facets of the human psyche in a safe space. We're not only faced with the horrors of what human beings are capable of but also the horrors that exist outside of our control. Horror films allow us to explore what-ifs. How far would I go if I was desperately trying to survive? And what would happen if evil was real? Is evil real? Is there life after death? In 1972, Pope Paul VI delivered a papal address where he lamented the loss of belief in evil within the Catholic faith. But in 1973 a film was released which put evil to the forefront of people's consciousness and that film was The Exorcist. The Exorcist was probably one of the first films that was branded widely as being cursed. There was a fire on set that destroyed everything except for Reagan's room. A Jesuit priest was called in to bless the set family members actors and crew died there were serious injuries on set there were major issues with people fainting during showings of the film and really we've probably heard all the stories but the reality is far more logical tragic yes but logical both Linda Blair who played Reagan, and Ellen Burstein who played her mother suffered serious back injuries on set Blair suffered a fractured spine and Burstein suffered from a severely damaged coccyx except there's no mystery behind these injuries. They were caused, in short, by a director who was willing to injure his actors in order to get the shot that he wanted. The shots of both actors screaming in pain as they were horribly injured are the shots that made it into the final cut of the movie. Many people connected to the film died, but the deaths were not mysterious and some happened years after filming and are yet still accredited to The Exorcist curse. The reality of The Exorcist is that their PR team encouraged the controversy. The stories of people vomiting and fainting and of weird coincidences were spun by a clever PR team and are tactics that are still used to market films to this day. But there are four films that we need to talk about today. Four films that do seem to have caused some bizarre ripples throughout history. On these four film sets, there are stories of eerie coincidences, death, destruction and witchcraft when the omen was in production they hired a religious advisor to try and ensure that they were accurate in their representations of theological ideas after consultation the advisor recommended that the production be stopped immediately and the film never made he felt that making the film was dangerous as it was inviting evil into the lives of the filmmakers Gregory Peck was cast to play the leading role in the film and was making his way to England to begin filming when his plane was struck by lightning. This, as an isolated incident, is not beyond the realms of possibility. But a few days later, a writer for the film was en route to England when his plane was also struck by lightning. And that wasn't the only flight issue, though. A plane that was hired to take shots of London for the movie crashed into a vehicle at the end of the runway, killing six people, the pilot's wife and their five children. It's pretty strange, right? But it doesn't end there. During filming, the executive producer was leaving his hotel to go for dinner with his wife. He had booked into a restaurant down the street and they were making their way there when an explosion rocked the street. The restaurant had been bombed by the IRA. Some sources also say that this same producer narrowly avoided being hit by lightning while in Rome. In 1976, special effects supervisor John Richardson was working on the World War II epic A Bridge Too Far. He had just finished working on The Omen and had been responsible for all of the death effects in the film, in particular the decapitation of the photographer scene. It was Friday the 13th. Richardson and his fiancée were driving through the Dutch countryside when they were involved in a horrific car accident. His girlfriend was tragically beheaded in a very similar way to the fate of the photographer in the film. When Richardson was pulled from the car, he saw a road sign that directed him to a municipality of Holland, Omen, and it was 66.6 kilometres away. The details of this particular movie curse are sketchy. The stories have been written and rewritten numerous times and with each retelling the details seem to change ever so slightly. For example, the identity of the person on the second plane that was struck by lightning changes depending on whose version you read. The tragic suicide of Gregory Peck's son Jonathan is often attributed to the Curse of the Omen but I think that's perhaps grasping at straws and probably unfair to the memory and life of Jonathan. There was only one part of the story that I had the most questions about and that was the car accident. Did it really happen and if it did happen did it happen in the way it is told now and the short answer is yes. Liz Moore is often left unnamed in the retelling of the story and often referred to as Richardson's fiancee or assistant or girlfriend. In actuality Liz Moore was a very talented special effects sculptor who had worked on such films as A Clockwork Orange and Star Wars. There's some dispute to a claim made that the Omen road sign actually read 666 kilometers. It's been parroted since on countless websites. However, according to a forum poster at Horrorexpress.com, who declares himself to be Liz Moore's son, there was no 666 crap. All of the other details, though, are accurate. The person in question is my mother Liz Moore, the message begins. She was not John Richardson's assistant. She was one of the designers on The Omen, a special effects sculptress. She was decapitated and it was Friday the 13th and she died next to the sign for Omen. The facts given by me are as correct as they can be. On the face of it, it would appear that the forum poster is genuine. If you check out their username, Dan Dickinson, you'll soon discover that there is indeed an individual by that name whose mother was Liz Moore and yes she was a sculptor who worked on a number of movies. The website lizmooresculpts.com states that she died on August the 13th 1976 leaving a son Dan. John Richardson who was driving the car at the time later gave an interview where he said that when he was thrown from the car he lay on the side of the road and when he looked up He saw a sign that was hand painted and covered in sixes. So, we're going to pause there. We'll stop after each film. So, first one, The Omen. What are your thoughts?
1: Are you surprised that this is a cursed film when they literally employed the son of Satan to play Damien? I mean, that kid is so creepy. He is so creepy. I am not surprised that this film is cursed.
0: (laughs) Besides the kid being creepy and needing a good boot down the stairs, what do you think?
1: I feel like there's a lot of coincidences linked together with the exception of the car accident.
0: Well, now, you see, this is what I thought about this film at first, too, where I was like, okay, we are grasping at straws. And I do think it's unfair to say Gregory Peck's son committed suicide... 100%. Or a, or completed suicide, rather, because of this curse. 100%. It's, un, it's an unfair thing to say. Also and
1: um, irrelevant, I'd imagine.
0: Yeah, it's irrelevant yeah. and it needs to not be connected to the curse. And the other stuff is all... I mean, it's pretty weird. Like, two planes being struck by lightning another plane going down. At the time, the IRA, unfortunately, were bombing London regularly. So, it's, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that a member of the crew would be caught up in that in some way. But the car accident slayed me a little bit i have to say
1: i think the only thing about that is the 66.6 kilometers because i don't know any road signs yeah. and and i'm happy to be standing stand stood corrected by you guys if you know of a road sign that goes into decimals when it's given distances please let me know but as far as i'm aware they tend to round up or round down so you get a whole number so it was either 666 kilometers away which is potentially longer than holland i oh, know it's not i'm joking um or it was 66 rather than 6.6 so i think that is a bit fabricated however everything else seems to be corroborated
0: yes and it seems to be accurate as well so john richardson gave an interview where he said you know it happened it did happen the way i i told it and liz moore did that was the way she died she was decapitated in this horrific accident on the road to omen that is absolutely true and but john richardson says that he woke up and he saw like a um, handmade like you know those road signs that you have that are almost for the community not yep. for like the wider public and it had sixes written all over it but he didn't say anything about 66.6 kilometers away and and when i first read the story i was like i've literally never seen a road sign no. that says 66 point anything and again i know? might
1: be wrong like you might have some in your local but they're not common not common and
0: i couldn't find any and i feel like if a road sign like that existed that said omen 66.6 kilometers would oh, be a tourist hotspot would it yeah. not it, there's yeah. no pictures of it anywhere but apparently the rest of the story is true mm. and in the omen if you haven't seen it in a while the photographer gets brutally decapitated by a sheet of glass i think and i, I mean for the time as well it was a pretty genius piece of special effects because it is really well done yeah i re-watched the clip when i was researching this and i was like oh that is good and that's how she died.
1: Well, I love that film anyway, so I'm a bit a bit biased. The thing is, with curses and stuff, I like to I like to know a reason. I like to know like did the director make a deal with the devil or did it annoy someone like was what they would or is it, is this curse solely based around the controversy that it caused once it was released?
0: So the the religious advisor talked about how the whole thing about the devil is that the devil likes to be invisible. I don't know that because I don't know very much about like specifically the, the theology around the devil but that he likes to be invisible and when you are putting him on screen like that as a in, in the form of a child you are making the devil visible and that it was going to piss off the devil and therefore bad things were going to happen. But I would like to say that I think if the devil is real he definitely fucking can do more than a few bolts of lightning I just See, think if he didn't want something to happen, he just wouldn't. it just wouldn't happen. And also I'm assuming the devil's gender. So devil, if you're a non-binary person, I apologise.
1: I also take the opposite opinion when we talk about this and I've said it before in that I feel that films and stuff like that talking about the devil actually have the intended effect. If the devil was a real thing, which I think is, then, you know, actually it takes the edge off of it because there's always going to be a certain amount of people that will watch that film and enjoy it. And therefore the the power of the evil is not as powerful. Do you see what I mean?
0: Yeah, I do see what you mean.
1: I, <laughs> on cue stuff falls down our Sorry, chimney. Sorry, something just fell down our chimney and
0: it <laughs> was very traumatising. <laughs> so for the omen, are we going for cursed or eerie coincidences?
1: I think I'm going to go for cursed.
0: Oh, didn't expect you to say that.
1: Just because I feel like I believe in all this stuff.
0: So let's move on to another film then. We can chalk the events of the omen up to eerie coincidence, if you're me and an actual curse if you're Dan. But there was another film that would be released nearly 20 years later in 1994 that would also spark rumours of a deadly curse that had travelled down through generations. Production for The Crow began in 1993 and was immediately marred by strangeness. Just before the shooting began, the director received a voicemail from an unknown caller that simply said, If you make this film, bad things will happen. There was a freak accident involving two electricians and an electrical wire. They both survived, but one sustained life-altering injuries. There was a hurricane that swept in and completely destroyed the set. But accidents happen, and freak weather happens, whether you are making a movie or not. But perhaps the most interesting aspect of the alleged curse of the crow is actually the curse of the Lee family. And strap yourselves in because this one's about to get weird. Bruce Lee was born in San Francisco. He was born on the year of the dragon, in the hour of the dragon, and his Chinese name translates into little dragon. However, his parents always referred to him as Little Phoenix, which is traditionally a female name in Chinese language. The reason for this is both tragic and strange. The Lees had had another son who passed away and it is alleged that they believed that they were the victims of a curse that would pass down through the male members of the family. According to tradition, if you called your son by a female name it would confuse the demon and they would be unable to take his soul. Bruce Lee is hailed as being the best martial artist in cinematic history and he died during the filming of his fifth movie. Lee was in the apartment of a well-known actress when he took a standard painkiller and lay down for a nap. He never woke up. There was speculation that Lee had a reaction to the painkiller or that he had a drug problem or he was killed by a legendary death punch. Or maybe he was murdered by the Chinese mob for revealing martial arts secrets. It's also alleged that he had had his sweat glands removed so as to look better on screen and therefore he died from heat stroke as his body struggled to regulate his temperature. Whatever the reason, the fact is that Bruce Lee died far too young and on the verge of being a massive breakout star. His final film was a box office smash hit. In the movie Game of Death, Lee plays the role of a martial arts film star who is shooting a movie and survives an attempted assassination on set. In the scene, the hitman exchanges a prop bullet for a real bullet and shoots Lee during the scene and attempts to make it look like a freak accident. In 1993, a film was made about the life of Bruce Lee called Dragon, The Bruce Lee Story. In the film we see Lee fighting with an ancient samurai demon who was trying to take his life. Towards the climax of the movie, the demon suddenly turns its attention to Brandon Lee, Bruce Lee's eldest son. Brandon Lee was offered the chance to play his father in the film, but chose to turn the offer down, and instead accepted a role in the film The Crow. The Crow was Brandon Lee's fifth feature film, and like his father, he would not survive it. In the fateful scene, Lee's character makes his way to a barn to have a showdown with the bad guys who murdered his fiancé. On entering the barn as the crow, he gets shot at by the men and the showdown ensues. Except this time it didn't. There are varying amounts of finger-pointing and blame for what happened next. But what it doesn't change is what actually happened. Brandon Lee entered the barn and was shot at. He fell to the ground as scripted and they all waited for him to get back up again. But he didn't. Brandon Lee had been shot. A real bullet became lodged in the barrel of the gun and no one had realised. When the blank was loaded it forced the real bullet to be shot from the barrel and Brandon Lee died from his injuries. Again, there are lots of eerie coincidences at play here And maybe we're just trying too hard to find patterns in chaos and to find a reason for terrible things that happen so that we don't have to blame ourselves and we don't have to blame human error and misjudgment.
1: Well, there's more than coincidence there, surely. That's uncanny, is it not? I don't know a lot about Bruce Lee. Martial arts movies aren't my thing. I enjoy them, but I don't know a lot about them. I did not know about that being a plot line in Game of Death. Yeah, And when you were reading it, I was like, because I, I know the Brandon Lee story because I love The Crow and like it's a common story. Didn't realise that that was the plot of Game of Death because that's how Brandon Lee died.
0: I got all of my information for these two films from um, The Shudder Cursed Films series, which was really good, by the way, and not at all hokey as I thought it would be. I thought it would be really cheesy, but it was actually really interesting. And in it, so Bruce Lee is, he runs and he goes to jump, and this bad guy, you know what's going to happen as the watcher, this bad guy shoots him and he falls into a crumpled heap, and they're waiting for him to get up, and then he doesn't get up, and they realise he's actually been shot. And then you see the scene in The Crow where he falls. And they, I mean, when they talk, when the crew talk about that scene in The Crow, because they're interviewed for this, and it's, I mean, it's it's horrific, and they're all seriously traumatized by what happened because they probably all feel like in some way they're to blame.
1: Imagine being the actor that shot the gun.
0: Oh God, he, I don't think he was ever the same afterwards. No,
1: I don't. Well, you, I, unless it was intended, which I, there's no reason to think it was.
0: No, it it seems like Heroin. they they cut a lot of corners, yeah. and they had hired local people. To do the prop weapons because it was cheaper than having a specialist in to do it, and when and it is it was quite common to use real guns and blank prop bullets and blank bullets, yeah. and actually it it just got lodged in the barrel. That was it. There was a real bullet lodged and nobody checked thoroughly enough beforehand. I just I mean it kills me. And it was it was both of their fifth movie fifth movie, and in the Bruce Lee biopic film. Um, the family were approached beforehand and they got the go-ahead to make the biopic. Not saying that, obviously, it's 100% true that there was a demon following the family, but, you know, the family got to go-ahead. And I feel like his... Uh, the mother of Brandon Lee, I think her name was Linda. I think she came out later and had to say, there is no curse. Like, please, there isn't a curse. Mm. But they are some pretty creepy coincidences.
1: Linda, I will respect your wishes and I'll go with not a curse on this one, but, man... That's some flipping written in the stars kind of eeriness there, isn't it? Very dark. I just, I can't, I wonder if Bruce Lee's parents were alive when Brandon died. Because that's.
0: Yeah, I mean, if it's to be believed that they actually thought that the eldest boys in their family were cursed. And there was allegations that, I mean, I don't mean allegations, not the right right word, but there were rumors that they would dress Bruce Lee up as a girl, as well as calling him a girl's name, because they were genuinely that terrified Mm. that this demon was coming to take away their sons. Which, if I mean, if you believe that as a family, you must live your whole life in terror. And then if your eldest grandson then dies, you must be thinking, oh my, like the, the, this is obviously real. It's that confirmation bias thing, isn't it? Mm.
1: There's something, if Brandon Lee's death was a hit, which I haven't ever heard any argument saying that it is, but if it was a hit, there's some kind of poetic, poetic mafia esque stylings behind the way he went right
0: i mean there's some serious thought that went into that that yeah. is probably not conducive to assassinating somebody because i presume if you're assassinating somebody you've just got to take your chances yeah and you know hope for the best and not go for the poetic
1: i mean you're working on the basis that nobody i mean obviously nobody did check the guns but you're working on the basis if that's an organized hit you're working on the yeah. basis that nobody's gonna check the guns
0: the the theory that i found the most amazing is this kind of long-standing theory about bruce lee's death in particular that he was the victim of like a one-inch punch type scenario this like secret ninja martial arts move where you punch somebody in the right place and they'll die a couple of weeks later and that he was taken out by the chinese mob for for spilling secrets which i really don't think is is the case
1: i mean you've seen american ninja too you know what those ninjas are capable of i have seen american ninja when it comes to climbing boulders so hey
0: So I probably should not, I should take all that back
1: and apologize. Was there anything in your research about the phone call?
0: No, there wasn't. There wasn't anything about the phone call other than the fact that the director spoke about it. And he said at the beginning of filming, he got a voicemail from an anonymous caller. He never found out who it was that just said, if you make this film, bad things will happen. Mm. And that was it. Mm. So there wasn't, any, there wasn't any more digging into it. All the links to every to all of my research, by the way, are in the description of this episode. And there are loads. If you're a film person, there's link after link after link <laughs> for different stories about movies. And loads of them are well worth a read as well because they're really fascinating.
1: So last thing then, is it widely held that the, the issues that the Crow faced in terms of the curse were a legacy of the Lee curse rather than a curse to do specifically with that film? Yes. Interesting.
0: Whether you think these movies were actually cursed, or again, whether you think they're all just eerie coincidences, there were a lot of questions raised when strange things began to happen on the set of The Craft. Because on this set, the cast and crew decided to use actual witchcraft for the sake of authenticity, and the results were alarming. The Craft was released in 1996, and has continued to exist in the realm of what is current and relevant because of its realistic portrayal of witchcraft, and also the importance of respecting the craft. The film starred Robin Tunney, Feruza Balk, Neve Campbell, and Rachel True as four high school girls who form a coven, cast spells, perform rituals, and learn the power of the craft. While filming the movie, the director hired Pat Devon, who was an elder priestess and coven member, to ensure that the depiction of the rituals in the film were as accurate as possible. Devon created chants for the film, and allegedly cast a spell to get the film to number one in the box office. Feruza Balk, who played the character of Nancy, was also practising Wicca at the time, so lent her expertise to the authentic portrayal of witchcraft. Probably the most bizarre events occurred during a scene where the four girls perform a ritual calling on the corners, which was filmed on a beach. The crew had a park ranger on board for consultation for accurate tide times, as they were required to film on location at night time. Director Andrew Fleming later told The Guardian, We had a crane out there, because it had these overhead shots, and in order to shoot that fire they built in the film you have to run a gas line, and then it looks like the wood is burning but it's actually like barbecue gas and jets underneath the sand. So we spotted that weeks and months in advance with a park ranger who told us where the high tide stops, we picked a spot further away so we would be safe, and we were shooting at, I think, a medium tide. Feruza Balk was a practising Wiccan, and she said, you really shouldn't be doing this here. It was something kind of foreboding. And I said, well, we have to forge ahead, we're making a movie. Whenever they started calling the corners, it seemed to me that the waves started coming up and crashing louder. And finally, this one point, we had the camera set up overhead, and it was spinning around. This huge wave came and wiped out the whole set, and the park ranger said, I don't understand, this is a low to medium tide, so we had to stop. And you can see in the movie, in one of the shots, where the camera's overhead spinning around, and the waves come up and put out the fire. But the waves weren't the only thing that went awry. In the movie, the scene comes to its climax when Nancy is screaming and a lightning bolt strikes her. The girls were chanting, building up to the climax, and at the exact moment when Nancy screamed, all of the power went out on set. The set also had to be abandoned when it was literally overrun with a huge flock of crows that descended upon it. The cast and crew also reported that a single white owl was spotted numerous times on set. It would perch and watch the proceedings and seemed to move with them from location to location.
1: I didn't know any of that stuff. No, me neither. I mean... That of... came
0: from my uh, my good pal Brent Sponsor, by the way.
1: <laughs> How's he doing Just, these days? <laughs> he's all right, in case you're listening, Brent. <laughs> I am not surprised.
0: Nor was I. I wasn't surprised by that at all. I can't believe they had... Well, I'm, I'm impressed that they had Pat Devon on and they had real practicing Wiccans that were advising and saying okay this is what's authentic and this isn't but also you should then listen to those people if they say this isn't right and we shouldn't be doing this here
1: yeah and I also feel like it's one thing consulting to get it close but I don't feel <laughs> you know what I wish I am I don't feel uh doing the actual rituals is probably a good move
0: <laughs> and the whole point of that ritual if i remember correctly from the film is all about like the power of nature i'm calling on the power of nature to give the girls power in turn and they go to do it on the beach because it's like the water earth they bring the fire you know the wind yeah, all, the all of that all that yeah. elements stuff going on and i was like why <laughs> why then when the waves washed out the set i think i'd be like Okay, that's enough for now. We're going to have to rethink this.
1: <laughs> yeah, just get get one of them to like bring a jar of sand to their bedroom or something like that. <laughs> I have to I have to say
0: like it's not a cursed film and it doesn't remotely come under the list of cursed films if you kind of look up cursed films. This one is not it, but I found this story and I was like, "Oh, I didn't know that." And the white owl, apparently, it used to literally follow them from set to set or from location to location.
1: Touching the Fail. I feel like that's what they're doing in this film.
0: Probably. And I wonder if the whole, because we talk about familiars, don't we? And, and witches having familiars. And, you know, I wonder if that white owl was like, I'm gonna keep an eye on you because I don't quite know what you're doing.
1: Yeah. And also, I guess if you don't know what you're doing, you don't really know what you're conjuring either if you're doing legit things, do you? Very true. <laughs> so maybe it was just keeping an eye on it, make sure they didn't do any any summoning of things that, that couldn't be controlled or stuff like that. Yeah, it feels very much... I, I agree with you. It doesn't feel cursed. It just feels like they were, they were rustling the veil a little bit too much.
0: Whatever your thoughts on this, it resulted in concerns about the filming of the sequel. Three occult specialists were brought onto the set for the duration of filming to ensure that the spells being portrayed were being conducted in a safe and respectful way. But there is one more film that I want to speak about today. A film that even Rotten Tomatoes has said is categorically cursed. And it's surprisingly not a horror film. A film allegedly so cursed that it never got made. The Incomparable Atuk is a satirical novel by Canadian author Mordecai Richler, the incomparable Atuk tells the story of a Canadian Inuit who was transplanted to Toronto and who quickly adopts the greed and pretensions of the big city. It satirised the Canadian cultural elites of Richler's day, who in the novel fetishise Atuk first as a noble savage and, when his corruption becomes apparent, as a symbol of Canadian nationalism and anti-American sentiment. Many of the characters are parodies of real Canadian celebrities at the time, in the movie version, a tuk is living in Alaska when a documentarian comes to visit from New York City. He stows away on her plane, back to the city and becomes accidentally caught up with high society life in the city and hilarity ensues. The first person in mind to play the role of a tuk was John Belushi and the script was sent to him in 1979. Belushi loved it and in late 1981 he took on the role and there was speculation that the movie would be a blockbuster hit. On the 5th of March, 1982, John Belushi was found dead in his room at the Chateau Marmont Hotel in Hollywood. There was no mystery in John Belushi's death. He died of a drug overdose. He was 33 years old. In 1987, the script was purchased by United Artists and presented to actor Sam Kinnison. Kinnison was allegedly a nightmare to work with due to his bad temperament and alcohol and drug issues. He had gotten the script rewritten independently and was fired when he presented it on set. He was later killed in a horrific car accident. According to witnesses at the roadside, Kinnison was pleading with an invisible someone to keep him alive. He then paused and seemed to listen to their response, said OK then, and died. He was 39. When news of his death became public, there were those that began to make the connection between Kinnison Belushi and Atuk. But most thought nothing of it. In 1993, the script was passed to John Candy, who was keen to play the role, and was then found dead in his hotel room after suffering from a heart attack. He was 43. The script was given to him by a man named Michael O'Donoghue, O'Donoghue had given the script to Belushi and Kinnison and Candy and prior to giving it to Candy he made alterations to it. He died eight months after Candy of a brain haemorrhage. He was 54. In 1996 United Artists again decided to begin filming *A Tuck. Comedian Chris Farley was approached to play the role. He was eager to be involved. In 1997 Farley suffered a heart attack and died during a drug and alcohol binge. He was a lifelong Belushi fan and also died at 33. Phil Hartman had also read the Atuk script and had been due to play the role of Alexander McCune, the villain of the movie. In 1998, Hartman was murdered by his wife who subsequently turned the gun on herself. If legend is to be believed, United Artists quietly had the script seized and secured it so that it would never see the light of day again. Now let's be real here. All of the deaths allegedly connected to the Atuk script are completely explainable. Drugs, alcohol, addiction, murder, they aren't exactly paranormal. An excessive drug use was definitely not unusual in the wild world of Hollywood. All of the actors involved in the Atuk curse also all worked on Saturday Night Live at one point or another, but we don't call it the SNL curse because countless others have worked on SNL and not died young or tragically. When celebrities in particular die young, we try to unpack every thread of their lives and understand where it all went horribly wrong, which often results in uncovering some eerie coincidences along the way. But are they just eerie coincidences? Or is there something more sinister afoot?
1: Now that is a cursed film, isn't it? Because I guess that's the one thing that sort of makes the others less believable is that they actually got made. If they were truly cursed, would they have ever been finished?
0: I think we have to be realistic about the fact that it is true. Like, you know, we try and when celebrities die young, because they're so in our modern frame of reference, like celebrity culture, we try and find reasons as to why it happened that kind of might go beyond their own self-destructive behaviours. And the reality is, is that they seem to have approached very similar men each time to play the role of, overtook and, and comedians who were living this wild lifestyle who maybe it's not very surprising that they died so young but the thing about this story is is that united artists decided you know what we're not going to do this which le- gives credence to this curse
1: yeah but i guess if you're the if you're the people at united artists trying to get this film made how many potential leading men need to die before you make that decision? Because there must be a point where you're like, okay, this is just, I know we're approaching the same kind of people, but this is just too much. Like, if you're three or four four leading men, potentially lead men down, like, you have to make a decision, don't you?
0: I think if, if I was trying to make this film and say, you know, the first time it wasn't United Artists, I think, but whenever they took over the film, I mean, they had five or six men that died after they took it over. I think I would be like, yeah, yep. Yeah, probably after, maybe two. Yeah. Maybe two. I mean, one is a tragedy. Two, you'd kind of go, hmm, hmm, maybe not. Maybe we won't do this because I feel like we shouldn't. Something's not right here. But do does that mean then that I believe it's a curse? No.
1: Have you read the script?
0: I'm still alive, so no. <laughs> I also don't think they'd want me to play the role.
1: How do we know that it hasn't done something really offensive to ancient spirits? because it's about an Inuit right
0: well yeah that was there were there are some people that believe that because they were trying to get non-Inuit people to play an Inuit role and that it probably wouldn't stand the test of time in terms of being respectful to Inuit culture that you know maybe there was there was something there with ancient first people and going no yeah you don't get to treat us like this yeah who knows
1: yeah I I'm I'm that's where I'm putting my money
0: there's a couple of films that we that I need to mention that okay. I never that I didn't address. Number one was Poltergeist. Yeah. Uh, and the reason why I didn't address Poltergeist is because everyone knows the story, and I, you know, the girls that died related to to the Poltergeist. Dominic Dunn died because her boyfriend murdered her, and Heather worked died of a terrible undiagnosed illness. That's not a curse. That's that is just really tragic. sad. Yeah. And it is tragic. I would highly recommend if you have Shudder. this isn't an ad by the way in case anyone's like why are you talking (laughs) about Shudder this whole episode if you have Shudder to watch the Cursed Films you can get a Shudder free trial I think
1: you can and also I'd just like to throw this in because I'm a massive geek Cursed Films is available on blu-ray in the United States so if you live in America and you don't have Shudder and would like to check it out you can actually buy it because Shudder do a really good job of putting a lot of their good originals onto blu-ray in the States
0: I did not know that, hmm. and the, the shudder covers five films, and it's like they're they're thirty minute episodes, and they're really interesting. And I thought they were very respectful; they weren't hokey at all. I was originally going to do the film Poltergeist, and then I decided by the end of watching that episode that it was that I was like, no, do you know what? I'm not going to do that. And I would have
1: cried because that the story of, the, of Heather Walk just. Oh, it gets to me. Like, it's horrific. heartbreaking. And yeah. it's not got anything to do with the film. It's got to do with inadequacies of the healthcare system. And well. she she died
0: during the filming and yeah. they decided not to finish it. And the board at Warner Brothers made them finish the film yeah, yeah. with a body double for Heather O'Rourke, yeah. which is horrific. It's horrible. There are other films, obviously, in that series as well that are really fascinating to, to like, digest and look. And there's the Twilight Zone movie, which has its own tragedies involved in it. It's a really good series so i would recommend that you watch it if you have the chance to do that um and i think that's it so if you enjoyed this week's episode you can find us on real life ghost stories dot com you can send in your own spooky story to real life ghost stories at gmail.com you can find our patreon which is patreon.com forward slash real life ghost stories where for five dollars a month or two dollars a month you get access to heaps of extra content And on that note, we shall see you next week. Bye.